wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Something very different on Bleeding Daylight today. We're going to hear the story of As Hamilton's escape from a very dangerous situation in a country overtaken by rioting. The difference is that it's a shared experience. Together with a handful of others, As and I live this dangerous escape together. So this is also my story. What we share in this episode of Bleeding Daylight is a story that transformed both of our lives. The events we describe are real and set future directions for the both of us. Please listen and then share this very personal edition of Bleeding Daylight. I've known as Hamilton since April of 2008. We shared a a remarkable experience that we're going to explore together today. He's been reaching out and calling young people to a bigger life since he was still in his teens. These days, he works to inspire and empower young people. It's a pleasure to welcome As Hamilton to Bleeding Daylight. Welcome, As. Mate, thanks so much for having me on your show. At the time we met... We were both working in radio. So tell me about those radio days for you. When did the radio bug bite? Uh, You know, it was a funny thing. Um, For me, radio uh, actually probably bit in my mid-teens. My brother did radio announcing before me um, on a little community station in a place called Toowoomba in Queensland. Um, And um, he had this little radio show that he did with one of his friends from school and I think ever since I can remember, I've saved every dollar for, you know, music for the um, the actual show. So we used to spend all our money on CDs and my brother would play them on his radio show. So um, the second my brother quit radio, because uh, he couldn't do it anymore, I literally went, can I have a go? I've got the CDs. And that's actually how it started for me. So I literally rocked up with a box of CDs with no skill and they said, well, we do need a show. You own all the music. All right, you can have a go. So... That was when I was 18 and I did about 10 years of radio from that point on, on and off. So, yeah, it's 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 sort of sort of got launched out of my brother's passion and I used to listen to his show and go, I want to have a go at that. It's an interesting passion to have. Radio does bite fairly hard and, as you say, you're involved in radio for a number of years. But alongside that, you were spending time speaking to young people, even from that young age. Tell me a bit about that. Well, actually, what was interesting, like I've always been passionate um, about the underdog. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Even when I was in school, like uh, I went to a very, um, I suppose, a pretty straight Christian school. You know what I mean? Like you, you couldn't really go too far outside the box or it was sort of very hard for you to, to fit into the community. And so I've always had a, a heart for those guys and girls in the school community, even when I was in school, that kind of just didn't quite get it. Uh, when it came to faith and things like that. so And even the underdog. And and so I've always been that way. And so when I got into radio, I did voluntary work, obviously, in radio. you got to start voluntary. I'm sure you did too. And then when I got my first paid gig, I remember my very first week or so, a guy walked in the back door of our radio station um, and I was starstruck. I was like, oh, my gosh, like this guy, I can't believe it's him, it's him. And um, the guy was, it was actually Sean Hart um, who played for the Brisbane Lions at the time. He rocked in and he was just in, in the lunchroom and I remember going to my boss and saying, is that Sean Hart? Why is Sean Hart here? Because I'm a mad AFL fan. He goes, yeah. And I said, why is he here? And he said, oh, I forgot to tell you, uh, part of your, your job is you're going to be going into schools uh, with Sean Hart 
and doing a, a program on making good life choices uh, every week. And I must admit, like, there's a couple of things that went through my head at that stage, and a lot of people don't know this about me. I, obviously, being a speaker and a communicator for a living now, prior to that, I was actually extremely shy through school. I didn't do any public speaking. I didn't do any, you know, drama or anything in front of people. Radio was kind of an outlet, you know. I, no one had to see me. So when I got into radio... I had no desire to be speaking publicly. I just wanted to talk in the studio, do my own thing. So my boss is now telling me, oh, you're going to be doing sort of public speaking and doing communication stuff on a stage in front of students. It freaked me out and it wasn't something that I thought I'd enjoy at all. But over literally doing this program with Sean probably for the next four to five years, like I just found my passion because I was sort of forced into something I'd never done before. So that's sort of where it all started and I've probably become more passionate about that kind of medium of communication than even, you know, obviously the radio sit behind a microphone sort of situation. So how did it work for you as an 18-year-old still learning how to make your own life choices and you're going into schools telling young people how to make life choices? Do you know what's so funny? Because I, I, if I had a dollar for every student that I talk to in schools now, they come up and go, I want to do what you do. And I, I say exactly the same thing to them. I go, well, you need to have a life story <laughs> to begin with. I mean, Sean, Sean would do the program most days and he would, he would speak for about 45 minutes. And it actually happened that um, on this one day, I remember it was this primary school and these kids were just being so, like, they were painful, like... <laughs> If you can imagine Rodney, like the worst students ever. Anyway, Sean takes some time out. He literally comes over to me. I'm just waiting for my five-minute spiel at the end, to be honest. And he goes, do you have anything you can add to this story or something that can speak to these kids? And it was so interesting. I just had a life story, like this little story um, that popped into my mind of when I was younger and something happened with me and my brother. And so I shared it. And the kids were completely enthralled by it. It was something I'd never shared before, completely enthralled. And straight after that, Sean said to me, every time we do the program from now on, I want you to share that story. And so it was kind of a very organic growth in my public speaking space. I, From then on, every week, I would share that story. And then it, as Sean's career kind of ended in football, as the transition of him not being as relevant as a footballer, it sort of turned out that I would do about 50% of the presentation and he would do 50%. So it was a very tag team. Uh, and I did that, yeah, for five years and, yeah, really loved it. And obviously that sort of led into being a communicator for organisations like Compassion and things like that. If you if you ask my teachers, do you think he'll end up being a, a public speaker or a communicator, they, they'd probably laugh at you, to be honest. Our paths collided in 2008 in April. We met in Sydney when we were just about to jump on an aeroplane. Tell me a little bit about that story from your perspective. Well, for me, uh, I mean, that was about the fourth year of being involved with Compassion Australia, uh, sponsoring kids. It was through radio I sponsored my first child. Uh, reluctantly, didn't wasn't huge, a huge fan of giving up my own money, but it kind of challenged me. And then I went on a bit of a journey. So I was about four years into that whole getting to know about Compassion. And then obviously we got invited as radio announcers to, to go on this trip. For me, because obviously being very young, like I think I was 20, 22, 23, like, I'm going to be pretty honest, I was pretty unorganised and even up until about two weeks beforehand, I hadn't got my injections, I hadn't really, I didn't even know where Haiti was, uh, where we were going to travel. I genuinely didn't even know Rodney. Like I I remember uh, after being to the doctor to get my injections when he was like saying, don't go, you're going to die, like you probably should cancel this trip. I looked up on a map where Haiti was because I hadn't 
for me being a young bachelor, it was just like, oh, I'm getting two weeks off work. This is pretty cool. I get to travel. I haven't done much international travel. So when I rocked up to Sydney and met you guys, to be totally honest, I actually had no expectation for this trip, except that I knew I was getting off off, off my show for a couple of weeks and I was getting to travel. And, you know, that was, that was pretty much me. And that's, that is probably as naive as you possibly can get before traveling to somewhere like Haiti. But that's, that's really where I was at. One of my most enduring memories was meeting you. There you were, a young guy with very long dreadlocks, turning up at the airport, and we had just been given a, a couple of packs from the, the local compassion representatives, uh, had a bit of water in there, some, some hand sanitizer and things like that, and you turning up, going through security, and they said, did you pack your bag? Do you know everything that's in your bag? And you said quite innocently and truthfully, no, I don't. And I don't know that that was a good look for a young guy with dreads. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I don't remember that. But what's great about that story is that we recently, Beck, my wife and I recently had to talk to a young guy who travelled to the States who just did exactly the same thing. He got to the airport. They said, did you pack your bag? He said, no. This, is this your bag? He said, no, it's my mother-in-law's bag because he borrowed it for the trip. You know how like there's just that young innocence of travelling for the first time? Yeah, I didn't know what they'd given me, Rodney. I don't even remember doing that. But yeah, I do remember getting patted down. So that... <laughs> That does make sense that I did get taken to the next level of security. Once again, 22, I'm on a trip, whatever, no biggie. Fortunately, though, I feel like the world wasn't as crazy back then. I I don't know. I feel like maybe it wasn't as crazy as it would be now. Maybe I would have never got to Haiti if I did something like that now. But, yeah, thanks for reminding me of um, young as. So you're talking about being disorganised. I do remember, of course, we're going on a trip for for a week and a half or whatever it was back then. And and on that first day, we had slept over in Miami on the way off to towards Haiti. And you said, hey, let's stop at Kmart. I need to buy some shirts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, because this is the thing. I hadn't, as I told you this before, I didn't even know where I was travelling to. I'm not a very organised person. Like, I remember <laughs> I remember getting calls from people at Compassion saying, like, as I said, like, two weeks out, like, I should have had my, you know, immunisations or whatever it was, all the different sort of, um, you know, shots and stuff, like, weeks earlier. And they're like, have you had your shots? I'm like, what shots? They're like, have you read the email? I'm like, what email? You know, and so this was very as Hamilton in his early 20s, just very, ah, I mean, I had dreadlocks. I was pretty, I was a real chiller. And then I remember, I think we got to Miami and everyone was really stressed about the dress code in Haiti. They were like, you need to wear a button-up shirt. I'm like, I'm a 22-year-old bachelor. I don't even own a button-up shirt. And I bought some of the daggiest clothes I've ever owned because I needed to make sure that I, I fit in with the people. Um, and then when I got there, I went, I could have just kept my old clothes, I'm pretty sure, um, and I think when on, on, on arrival back in Australia, I think I just went straight to the bin and dumped those clothes. I don't think I've ever worn them again, but thank you for reminding me of that. that that's really nice. <laughs> I had my own moment in that store, if you remember. While you were picking out shirts, I headed straight down to the back of the store and found a, a bicycle that they had on sale, and I rode that up and down the aisles so that I could say that I'd cycled in the US. So there you go. See, that's absolute passion. 
there's a lot of fun leading into this trip, but once we get to Haiti, things start to, to change. And I remember the very first morning after we had arrived in Haiti and had travelled up towards our, our hotel and all wide-eyed seeing what was going on, and we got up the next morning and there were these meetings going on, there were discussions happening. And tell me a little about that. It's interesting how you, you have different people's perspectives of a trip. But see, for me, I remember sitting on the outside of them. There was just a lot of whispers, 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 whisper, oh, what's going on? But I was a young guy, oh, yeah, whatever, we're going, whatever. I do remember them saying something about we're not going to some region. Uh, we're going to change the area we're going to. There's been a little bit of unrest in the streets. I remember the word unrest was used a few times, a little bit of unrest. But don't worry, a bit of unrest. And like, and you've got to set this up for our, for those that are listening, like when we the things that stood out to me were, I don't know if you remember these things the things that stood out to me was that when we rocked up to our hotel there were people with weapons out the front there was armed guards and I thought that was quite unique to go to a hotel and there's armed guards and one of the guys from Compassion said this is where you'll be staying if you stay inside the walls you should be safe <laughs> so that that was for me that was the stuff that stood out to me going oh right where are we again like why are there people? Why are there guards? What you know? This is a hotel. I don't. I don't really. Don't really comprehend this. But yeah, obviously the next day there were all these meetings about. It's been a bit of unrest. We're going to a different project, um, and so that was that was it. You know, I was like, okay, no worries. Didn't even think much more more of it. I don't know what what were you thinking? Oh, this is serious at that stage, or were you just going? Oh yeah, no worries. Like like I was just blase. I really didn't know what was going on. I think a bit like you, I was kind of on the outside of those conversations. There was four of us from different radio stations in Australia had travelled to Haiti to see the work that Compassion was doing so that we could head back to Australia and be able to tell those stories. So, of course, we needed to go and visit the, the projects, as you say, connected with local churches. And, and you're right, they did use terms that would suggest that nothing much going on, but we'd better not go there. And so we're thinking, okay if if that's the case then then we'll we'll just sort of relax a bit and we'll go to a different place with no idea of what was about to unfold and and I don't think we still had any idea uh, until it really did begin to to unfold and and maybe you've got a perspective on when you first realized that things weren't as they should be every everyone has a life story um, that changes the trajectory of their life and I think that morning that fateful morning where there's been some unrest in the streets, um, impacted me on multiple levels. Everyone remembers things differently. I remember things like rocking up to the project. There was hundreds of kids jammed into this room. There was very basic, but the kids were so happy to see us. And, you know, obviously I had my dreadlocks. The kids wanted to plait them, and so that was pretty overwhelming. I remember deep, like feeling deeply personally that I think, oh, I was thinking to myself, man, I'm a rubbish human being. I complain about so much stuff. These kids are really sim- living very basic, simple lives and somehow they've found joy in this moment. And um, I remember we hung out at the school and we looked at some of the stuff that Compassion was doing. And that was all very impressive. Uh, and I don't know who told you, Rodney, in this time, but for me, I remember Gilbo, who was one of the um, guys from Compassion, came up to me, whispered in my ear, as we need to go, go to, the, go to the vehicles. We need to go. There's been some unrest. We need to go now. That was the moment. It's like, oh, okay, um, sure. And I, I remember we were sort of all sort of, oh, bye, kids, and we found ourselves in our vehicle. So I don't know how you were in that pro- – what were you doing or thinking? How did you even find out we had to leave? Did you have a, a whisper in the ear or was it sort of like you just followed everyone else? What was going on for you? 
I distinctly remember we were told that we would have opportunity where there is radio people, we needed to record interviews. And so we had our recording devices. We'd interviewed some of the kids through a translator, and we were told that some of the parents were going to turn up and that when they turned up that we could interview them to, to let uh, them tell us what the impact of compassion on their family was. And yet parents were turning up taking kids straight away, turning up, taking kids straight away. And I remember them saying, oh, look, they're, they're wanting to take their children home. They, they feel safer there. And we realised that something was not right. And then we spent a, a fair bit of time just in the office talking over what happens in the program rather than just spending time out there with the kids. And, and then they said, yeah, we, we need to go. Isn't that incredible that you remember that? Because I remember being in the office but I don't remember anything about the parents rocking up or any of that stuff. Isn't that insane? I was probably so caught up in hanging out with the kids and knowing me being who I was back then, you know, very whatever, pretty chill. You were there on mission to make sure you could get as much radio as possible, whereas I was just there probably thinking, I'm just taking this in. Make no mistake, I thought I was going on an adventure. This is something that, that has radically transformed my life yeah. as it has for you. And, and yet I was thinking, here I am, I'm I'm on an adventure. And yes, I needed to, to gather the audio and gather the stories and I had that mindset, but I was there for an adventure too and none of us were expecting what then happened. No, I, and, and once, once again, I remember we got to the point where we had to leave in the two four-wheel drive vehicles I do remember that I was in the vehicle. I'm pretty sure I was in one of the vehicles that had, it was like a Ute-style tray kind of four-wheel drive, and we had another vehicle go ahead of us. It's a bit of a blur, this next bit for me, because I think um, trying to put timelines on what happened when, I do remember we were driving down, um, heading towards where we'd come from, and I remember people from the local community coming out of their sort of side alleys and out of their homes so if just pleading with our driver, go back, go back, it's not safe. And you can see, you can see on their faces that uh, this is not good. This is something's not right and we didn't really know what was going on. Obviously, I think the compassion staff were trying to protect us from as much as they could, like try to keep us, you know, calm and, and they did an amazing job because I remember our drivers turned around at one point and went, went in a different direction and then I remember going down that direction and then it happened again. I do remember uh, the driver and he's like, no worries, we'll find another way. <laughs> we'll go to the office. And it was very much like, okay, we're, we're changing all our plans. We're going to take you to the compassion office in the middle of town. Uh, it's going to be safer there. That's when everything just sort of got out of hand and crazy. I, is that how you remember it? What, what was going on and, and how do you remember that exact same sort of process of getting from this project into town in, in the heart of what we're about to see. I believe we were trying to head back to, to the hotel. They had decided that rather than visiting another program, which was originally on the agenda, that it was safer to just go back to the hotel. But in the meantime, as you say, we changed direction and, and streets that we'd gone down before now had barricades and, and it was just not safe. And as we turned onto that main street, that would have led us to the hotel. That's when I remember people running down towards where we were uh, with fear in their faces saying, do not go up there. And that's when we went through the, the gates of the Compassion Office and went inside and then things got real. What I remember is getting to that main point before the people were running at us and we were on that main road in the heart of town. It was like the main street of Port-au-Prince. 
and there was no one around. It was like it looked like a bomb had gone off. I don't know if you remember, um, just like the burnt rubbish up the sides of the roads. Because for me, instantly, as soon as we hit that main road, I felt like I was in some kind of movie reel. It felt like something I'd never seen. It was like, this is not real because those fires, it felt eerily quiet where we were driving. And I remember Eduardo just slamming on the accelerator, like whiplash in the back, like just takes off. And yeah, we landed probably a couple of minutes later, you know, now idling out the front of those big metal gates of compassion. And as you just mentioned, people running at us saying, you can't go further down. And I also remember there was a group of guys that had machetes that ran up behind our vehicle and they stole some stuff out of the back of our trade. I think it was like some drinks or soft drinks or, um, or some water bottles or whatever, and they just sort of took off. And we were all just waiting for these gates to open. I remember it seemed like an eternity. I know that one other guy in the car, one of the other announcers, he was really emotional because he could see what was coming towards us from down this main road. And I don't know if you remember it clear as I do, just sort of seeing a mob of people way down the other end of the road coming towards us. Like they were in some kind of march or riot or something and we're sitting in a car. We can't move because the compassion stuff, they'd already shut these gates because uh, they knew it was coming and we're kind of calling them and saying let us in and they're trying to move cars around. And it was just one of those very time stands still but everything's moving at a very rapid pace. Uh, and as the, the gates opened, I remember we went in, they shut the gates really quickly, and all I remember was, come with us, be very quiet. And it was just very much about, like, just move fast. And we just followed these staff into this office building. And that's sort of what I remember to that point. What, were you, what do you remember from that? Like, that, these are the points that sort of stick to my my memory that I can play over <laughs> in the mind. You know, you see it over and over and over again and it's sort of seared to the memory bank. But what was what was the memories in that moment for you? Well, certainly, as I mentioned, those people running down the street towards us with, with fear in their faces, and that was because there was that group, as you mentioned, that was further up the street coming down, and so they were wanting to, to get out of their way, and they were warning us to, to, to be away as well. And, and that's when we did get through those gates eventually and went upstairs, and, and then we stood at a very high window which seemed to be untouchable for us, but we were at a very high window and started peering out and seeing some of those people come down the street, some of them with, with bits of, of wood and, and other instruments that, metal, that they metal, had. Metal pipes. Metal um, poles and all sorts of things. Sort of all sorts of weaponry that they could find, whether it be a machete. Um, I don't think there was a lot of guns. It was more just like, what do I pick up? And I'm just trashing stuff. And this, is, and this for me is definitely... They say that, you know, your, your memories are connected to emotions. So clearly my emotions were at all time high. I, I remember peeking through the blinds because we were. We were peeking through the blinds. We were very high up in an office building, and I remember feeling exactly the same as you. We're safe now. We're in this office. As long as we stay here, we'll be fine. You know, they can't see us. Uh, and, and it was like clockwork. It was a very surreal experience. Like clockwork, a few hundred, maybe a thousand-odd people marching through the streets sort of past our building, and... They, they just kept on sort of walking past and they were screaming something, they were chanting something, and if anything was in their way, they were just breaking it or smashing it. And for me, the most defining moment is that 
at one stage, these guys have gone past our building and I must admit I felt a sense of relief that they've passed, they're gone. We, we've, we've dodged this bullet in a sense. And then, like, for me, the worst possible thing happens. I remember there was a rioter who passed our building who was just part of this sort of, you know, riot protest. And I reckon he was about 19 years of age, 20 years of age. He was only a young Haitian guy. And I remember him stopping in the middle of the road and just looking back at our building, like looking up at our building. And I was standing directly next to a guy named Dan uh, who was from Sydney. And if you've ever had one of these moments where you lock eyes with someone, you know how you just get eye contact with someone and you're like, oh, my gosh, they can see us. Like this is like you, you know what I'm talking about, Ronnie, right? You, you see someone. Absolutely. It yeah. It doesn't matter. If you wanted to get eye contact, but if you lock eyes, there's just a moment of we, we've connected, we now know each other, and I remember locking eyes with this guy. And I remember literally like in a sheer moment of panic saying to Dan, and this is the succession of how I remember things, I remember saying to Dan, Dan, they can see us, which was something that I didn't think was possible how high we were. And Dan was a very level-headed guy, and he was like, as we're pretty high up, I don't think they can see us from down there. But I'm sure I was locking eyes with this guy unless he was looking past me. <laughs> Maybe it was one of those, you wave to someone and they're actually waving at the person behind you. But I remember feeling like, we, he, no, he can, they can see us right now. And Dan kept trying to reassure me that we're pretty high up as it's not that bad. And then it was within a split second or two, one of the Compassion staff members says, it's probably not safe to be near the glass. Let's go to another room. It was this sort of just maybe we'll move into another room. And as we turned around, that's when everything just went pear-shaped. I remember the massive explosion in the room, glass just shattering, and we've all hit the deck. Do you remember that? I do remember we we were reminded, hey, look, it's probably not safe to, to be there. Step back. And it was just as we stepped back that there was this this huge sound. Now, I don't know what you thought it was in the moment because I, I still can't be sure what I thought of in the moment what it was, but I know that certainly some in the room thought it was a gunshot, but we, we didn't know, but everyone dropped to the ground as glass started to shatter uh, around the room. We later found out it, it wasn't a, a gunshot, but it was still pretty frightening. Yeah, it was, but, rock, it was so, rocks through the window, rocks yeah. through the window. I actually, I wish I had it, but I had an old camera and I remember going back into that room just before we left, and we'll get to that later, to take photos of all the glass all over the floor um, and, yeah, it had been rocks had come smashing through the windows and they just completely obliterated um, one of the entire front windows. Unfortunately, that camera <laughs> in, in transit disappeared, so I had no, no proof of that, but I remember thinking the same thing. Did we get shot at? What was going on? As soon as that glass hit and we were on the ground, it was, it was panic stations. I mean, the staff were like, get up, go, and we were running through the back of this, um, this office block and we found ourselves bolt locking a door into a small office where the staff were now telling us the people have seen us and we're not sure if they'll turn on our building. We've got, I remember one computer in that room. Do you remember one computer? I can only remember seeing one computer. Um, you can write an email to someone you love. And that was, that, that was just such a terrifying but definitive moment of this is real. Like you, you got to write something to someone you love. This might be the last thing that you, you write, but the people have definitely seen us and we don't know what that mob is going to do outside, whether they're going to try and 
take down a gate, come into our building, but now we're just locked in a room and um, we're going to do our thing. It was a very scary moment, as you say, and we're we're in a back room. And for part of that, we had some local compassion people that were with us, uh, but most of them were off in another room trying to sort out what it was that they thought that we should do, uh, what it was that that maybe needed to be done to to secure our safety for not just for us but for everyone there. Maybe at this point, because we we've talked about there being rioting people and and all the rest. Maybe you can give us a bit of an understanding of of why there were riots in the street. It's so interesting. Obviously, we got out, and that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, but I do remember we were being evacuated. We were waiting in the airport, and we started asking questions because, like you, Ronnie, like they was they were chanting in their own language, like they were saying something over and over, and they were yelling and screaming. I remember watching on the news, seeing the president pleading with the people, "Please calm down." What had happened was we got explained to us what had happened was the food prices had gone through the roof on this little island called Haiti. And it's only a couple of hours away from Miami on a flight, so it's not far at all. Because the food prices had gone through the roof and the cost of living um, had gone up and they were earning the equivalent of, what, two American dollars a day, there was a massive food shortage and the people who were riding was literally chanting, somebody help us, our children are dying our stomachs feel like, I remember this statement when they told us what they were saying. One of the statements was, our stomachs feel like they're being eaten by acid. Our stomachs feel like they're being eaten by acid. Please help us. It was only after we got out of Haiti, I went and did a lot more research on what they meant by that. And throughout so many of the rural communities, uh, kids were known to eat these mud pies, which were literally just, soil mixed with sugar and oil dried in the sun and you can still look this stuff up it's just full on and they were like mud pies and the kids would eat them the parents would say eat this at least your stomach will feel full and i think the stat back then was something like one in six children on the island wouldn't even make it to their fifth birthday and i think the nightmare of haiti for these people became extremely real for me in that sort of 24-hour evacuation process, and it changed me. This is in the setting of 2008. It's the time of the the, the global financial crisis, which, as you say, uh, raises the, the price of even the, the most basics of food. So it was the global food crisis at that time. And this is what the people were were rioting about. They couldn't feed their children yeah. and, and having to, to eat mud because they wanted to put something in their kids' stomach, but they had nothing to give them. And I, I guess, you know, like you, it was one of those things that was a defining moment where I decided I've got to do something about this. Now, you, you mentioned that we've got to the airport and, and this is some of the discussion that we're having, but that trip to the airport, this is the, the following morning we'd been in the compassion oh. office. The rock had come through the the window. Finally, the streets were calm. We made our way back to the hotel. And and as we're going, we're seeing all these buildings that had been absolutely destroyed and looted by people just looking for food for their families, spent a night at the hotel, and then there was the trip to the airport. See, this is the thing about this trip. Even little memories, I just got to, it reminds me, we would get back to the hotel, which was crazy in itself. I remember the radio station from Brisbane, my boss calling me, getting through, 
calling me and saying, can we send in helicopters? How do we get you out? And I'm like, you don't understand. Because on the news that night, they were cancelling all flights in and out of Haiti. There was all this sort of discussion. We don't even know if we can get a flight tomorrow. So it was really interesting. And I do remember them saying, we're going to leave super early in the morning because when it comes to a community like this, um, often throughout the day, the riots and the protests get larger and larger. Like that's what happens um, as the people kind of keep on coming together. So if we can get away early, we should be able to avoid the mobs, get you to the airport. There was one plane out that they were, you know, trying to get us on and that was the plan. And I remember leaving early and, and actually seeing that it was very, it seemed peaceful and quiet in the streets. It, it just seemed like, yep, we're going to be, we'll be able to get to the airport. And then in, you know, a matter of minutes, it happens again. We are confronted by a bunch of people running at our car and they're saying, you can't go through there. Uh, the road's been blocked off further down the road. It's not safe. Our driver, Eduardo, is once again trying to keep, you know, our spirits up. No worries. We'll, you know, we'll go back to the hotel. And I remember we turned around and we were heading, it must have been a half an hour period of time. We're heading back towards the hotel because I think they sort of went, let's just um, abandon getting to the airport at this time. But the problem was at the other end of this main period of road, they had barricaded that end as well. So we'd, we'd found ourselves caught between two of these riots or two of these barricaded protests, which were just highly dangerous. Because I don't know if you remember in the news, I mean, people were being killed in the streets as well the day before. Yeah, as you said, everything was being obliterated. And then, you know, I remember Eduardo saying it, no one will find another way. Like he was so, it's amazing how some people just have the ability <laughs> to go, I know my reality, but I'm just going to stay positive because these people just need to get out and I'm going to find a way. And so here we are now finding ourselves uh, driving down a part of the city or a, and it, through an area in this city that probably, you know, you normally wouldn't go and uh, in this sort of slum sort of area. And I remember we're weaving through these little roads and it was just getting more and more congested with people. And there was people sort of peering into our vehicles, um, getting closer up to the vehicles until it got to a point where we're in the heart of a slum and they're saying, I just remember the, the words, it was sort of broken English. It was like, no way out, no way out. And that was, that's the moment probably for me in this trip at the age of 23, 24 of whatever I was, I can't remember, somewhere around that, that I'm genuinely thinking to myself, this is the day that I die. Like, this is it. And that's where I was at at that point. It's interesting those times and, and the memories that they bring back. I, I do recall sitting in the car thinking that if this all goes as wrong as it's likely to go. If the doors ha of the car happen to to open, and I was looking around for places that we could run to and then slam ourselves behind these these metal gates in in these different places and trying to find a way, how can we stay safe? And I remember, and you probably remember this too, where we were in a place where the cars just had to stop because there were so many people around us, mm. and there was a, a guy with a, a metal bar and he was trying to incite the crowd to actually attack us until someone, and, and we only had this translated to us afterwards, but someone in the crowd looked at the vehicle, pointed to the Compassion logo on the side and said, wait, they're from Compassion. They help the children. They help our, they help our kids. Let them go. 
And that's the only reason we're still alive. It's actually crazy. I do remember that guy. I remember being terrified by the fact that there was a real sense of let's overthrow these vehicles. And the, and good reason for it too. I think we had two vehicles full of, you know, these, these Aussies that had money, uh, had equipment that was worth money, uh, and you've got an absolute desperate situation. So we were... We were an option to maybe be a solution for a few families to survive a little bit longer by maybe removing us from the picture. And the first vehicle, we got to this barricade and there was, yeah, there was all these sort of like militant sort of guys that were arguing about letting us through. And you must have been in the second vehicle, I reckon, because the second vehicle got stopped and it was at that point they let our second vehicle through because they helped the children. I remember the first vehicle got through somehow and they were waiting for us to come through, and that's when there was this sort of overthrow of the people saying, no, don't let them through. The other vehicle can go. And whether it was, I don't know what was the reasoning for it. Uh, And then there was somehow someone in the crowd identified their work with compassion. They helped the children, let them through. And it was like the doors opened again for us to get through and get out. And I, I, I just remember waiting for our vehicle to go through. I think I thought, oh, we, we're going to get out of this. We're going to we're going to see, um, you know, some opportunity to get through this crowd because there was such a thick crowd surrounding our vehicles, and it was just because of this one person, this one guy who somehow convinced the crowd, let them through, let them through. And I I remember the picture of the people just opening up like like the road just opening up and having a vivid feeling and a, a vivid thought process. It's like seeing the Red Sea part, but with people so that we could drive through. And we drove through this crowd of people and got to the other side of this sort of embankment. Um, and it sort of opened up from that point. I remember clearly having an image of this small child on the other side of this embankment looking out because everything as you say, everything is just in slow mo. It's it kind of doesn't it doesn't add up. It's it's kind of this is this really happening? And I don't think because it's happening in in real time and it's all happening so quickly, you're trying to process how this how is this happening and why is this happening? And it's such an interesting experience. But I just remember like it was almost like my whole life paused on the other side of this embankment as our cars were getting ready to move forward again. And I remember looking to the right of the vehicle and seeing this little girl at the top of a mound of rubbish, like she must have been three or four. And it was this huge pile of rubbish, like bigger than houses. It was just this mound of rubbish. It's like a rubbish tip. And she had a stick that was attached to a piece of plastic bag. And she'd made her own kind of self-made kite and she's just waving it in the air and she's just giggling. Like she's just giggling and just full of joy. She's watching this piece of plastic just sort of taking off in the wind on the top of a rubbish pile. It, this memory of this kid, it, it just se- it's seared into my memory that here we are, this crazy situation's going on all around us and there's this little kid somehow in the mess and in the, the most manic situations has found her own place of play and has found her own place of escape with something that she's created out of rubbish. 
And I, I know that's just a bit of a weird tangent to take, but I remember it so clearly because it kind of just hit me to the core of my being about what am I complaining about? Like what? who am I to be this guy from Australia? Like even though in my mess, in that time of like survival, I was still like, oh, my gosh, this is daily life. One of the the people that we had travelling with us was the Vice President of Compassion for that area, Uh, and he originally was from Haiti. And I remember him getting out of the vehicle and trying to find a way ahead, and and that was going to be difficult because there were people everywhere, as you say, that the roads or, or tracks, really they were, were getting narrower. And he actually found someone who was prepared to show us a way. And, of course, at that stage, we didn't know whether that was taking us to some of his friends around the corner who were then going to attack and rob or whether he actually was leading us out of there. But we were told we we had no choice. We we had to move because staying where we were was dangerous. So we didn't know whether we were going to another danger or whether this was something that is going to see us to safety. And I remember we kept going slowly until we finally turned a corner and there was a crew cab ute and there were people on the back of that crew cab ute with weapons, but they were police. And and this gentleman who uh, worked for Compassion, who was originally from Haiti, the, the image that is seared into my mind is him putting his hands up. He was a very big gentleman. And, and there he is with his arms outstretched way up in the air, walking towards these police very slowly so that they could see he had no ill intent. Uh, he explained the situation to them of, of what was going on. And it was then that they agreed to give us an armed escort to the airport. Again, it was one of those defining moments, like I said before, of, of where we were told they, they help our kids, let them go. And this was another one of those ones that kept us alive is that the police agreed that they would escort us out of that dangerous situation and get us to the airport. Yeah, I, I, I remember exactly the same thing. I remember um, seeing the compassion staff member having his hands in the air and we're just like, what are you doing? Because he just left us in the car. He's like, I'm going to go and do this. And yeah, being escorted to the airport with people with their weapons out. I do remember one of the females on the trip um, wanted to get video footage or take photos in this moment because she was just like, oh, we need to get proof of this. <laughs> and the rest of the guys in ACO were like, just put the camera down. This is not the time. Like we're, we just need to somehow get to the airport. Like let's not try and cause any more issue. And, and that's it's quite interesting. Arriving at the airport, I, I remember getting dropped off and we, we went into the airport and watching on the news how the United Nations base next door to the airport was deploying all their heavy artillery. They were rolling out tanks and all sorts of heavy artillery vehicles just to try and keep the peace. Um, you know, the president was on the TV trying to to calm people down. And we, I suppose, for the next few hours just had to uh, navigate this idea of what's going on outside and are the mobs going to overrun the airport? Are we actually going to be safe? Is there going to be a flight coming in? And, uh, yeah, that, that for me, you know, over those next few hours just waiting for this flight that was going to somehow get us out of this country, uh, a super bizarre time of waiting. 
it was a strange time and, and eventually we did get out of there. So in the midst of this turmoil of people who are rioting, not because they want to bring violence on anyone, but just because they, they could not feed their families because they did not have enough to put food in the stomach of their children. And they're, they're saying, someone listen, please, someone listen and help us. And we finally flew out of there. And, and I guess the memory for me is going down that runway, looking out the window, seeing fires burning all the way around Port-au-Prince, uh, the, the capital of Haiti, where there had been barricades and riots and, and fire everywhere. And, and then in a surreal moment, looking down in the grass along the side of the runway, seeing kids playing soccer and, and taking off. And this sense in which I felt, finally, we're safe. And at the same moment thinking, but there are 8 million people living in Haiti who are never going to afford a ticket to get out of this place. They are trapped here. They're trapped into poverty. And I think for me, as that was the moment I said, I've got to to do more to, to tell the story of these people so that they don't have to continue to live this way. I had the same moment. I had exactly the same moment. I remember flying out and then looking out the window of this plane. I remember running on the tarmac just to get on the plane. I remember getting on the plane and they didn't do any of the safety checks. It was just like in and out. So quick, it was like, we got to get you out. I had this, this crazy, overwhelming sense that when I go home, I need to be a voice for those kids who do not have a voice. That was it. It was like, you need to do this. It was a, quite a fascinating thing. When we got to Miami, uh, I remember on, on landing, uh, my phone beeped and it was from my mum and my dad who were actually in the States at the time, they'd finally got my email about how I was locked in a room at the Compassion office and we may not get out alive and I just want to, you know, let you know what's going on outside, there's rioting. And so they were rioting, like freaking out, not sure what was going on. And I remember writing back to my mum and saying, hey, mum, we're, we're safe, we're, we're back in Miami. Um, and I remember saying to her, um, I don't think I'll be, I, I think I need to go and speak for these kids. Um, and I, I think I need to quit radio. Like, I think I need to, I, I'm just so convicted by this. I, <clears throat> I don't know if I can go back to just interviewing like musos and celebrity, whatever that is. I think maybe I just, I just need to be a voice for these kids. And my mum was like, you know, very motherly, like, she's like, just don't do anything stupid, you're just emotional. Because I'd been building a radio show, like I was doing something that I loved and, and I was doing, I think, quite well at it. And it was, it was just for my mum, being a mum, probably thinking, okay, you're just emotional and not knowing the full extent of what was going on. I think she had good reason to be like, just relax. And, and that was it for me. And it completely changed me. I came back. I, I do want to say that I remember being back. We'd been back for a week or so, and one of one of the girls from Compassion in Newcastle actually came up to the radio station to debrief, and she wanted to put on a morning tea and say thank you, and they wanted me to share a bit, and she wanted to share, and she shared on that day about the moment that we were caught in the in, in the back streets of the slum where they were saying there's no way out, and she said when we were in Compassion in Newcastle, we got a text from. Uh, DJ, who was sort of the head of the team that took us over there, uh, and he had messaged and said, "You need to pray. You need to pray for us now, 
uh, we may not get out of this one. And, you know, DJ has been to on, on like dozens of trips all over the globe and he um, had personally felt that this, this one we may not get out of. And so she's sharing this experience um, from their end, like just on the compassion in the office kind of experience of this team. And she starts sharing and she said, you know, we started praying for your protection and we started praying for you instantly. Like we're talking while we're still in the slum, like in that moment uh, where we can't get out, they, they're praying. And she said that a lady in the office stood up on a chair and prayed, God, part the people like the Red Sea. And everything in me just went, that's exactly what happened. That's what I saw. That's the revelation I had when the people parted and we went through. I just was like, what? What did you just say? And it was, for me, just a moment of a living God answering a prayer in real time on the other side of the world. And for me, because of that revelation and that clarity of God working and moving in that moment, it just struck home a, a chord in my own heart again that, no, no, this is not me being crazy. I need to go and be a voice for these kids. Like this is not just me being emotional, experiencing something that, you know, it's, it's you, you're experiencing some post-traumatic um, stuff. No, this, this, is, this is a conviction that there's some kids starving to death on an island and no one knows about them and no one seems to care and I need to be a voice for that. So it wasn't long after, I, over the next three or four weeks, I tried to fit that call into my radio career. I tried to use that experience and go, okay, I'll do it through radio, but I knew my time was up. And so I think it must have been about four weeks after I, I went into my boss and said, here's my resignation. I need to go and, and, and share with teenagers about the world they live in and how they can actually change things for the better for kids that are in need. And my boss was like, do you, do you have a job lined up? I'm like, nope. I just have to do it. So I quit with no understanding of what that would look like. It was, it was pretty amazing. I ended up being able to step into another job within 24 hours uh, in a different ministry space, was able to volunteer with Compassion. And over that next nine months, Compassion opened up a role, they actually created a role for me to be a youth communicator for them, for the country and sort of build some youth product. And so I just look at that and I just go, yep, life-defining moments. And some people say, you know, do you want to go back to Haiti? Would you go back? And I would. I, 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 there's something about Haiti. It has my heart. I would go back. And even though it's crazy, there's something about that place that has captivated me the last 12 years. And uh, I just went on mission for that next, I don't know, three to five years within, or three years with compassion to, to be a voice for those kids. And then Post-Compassion, went and started my own thing in schools, working with teenagers and just challenging young people to have a heart of thankfulness, a heart to be generous and in the right time to reach the needs of those around them with their generosity, with their love, with their kindness, uh, with their empathy. And, and that's what I'm still doing today. And I suppose the, the foundation of it was that trip with you. 
It certainly was an interesting trip, and I did come back and and worked in radio for another five years, but used that opportunity to to speak out on behalf of compassion and behalf of children wherever possible until six and a half years ago, I actually started working for Compassion, and that's where I am these days uh, due to that that absolutely life-changing experience that we had. You've touched on there the work that you're now doing with the the organization that you founded and and that you run called Just Motivation. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so as I said, I mentioned I I worked with Compassion for three years in their youth department. And unfortunately, with the global financial crisis, actually caught up uh, to Compassion back then and had to lay off a bunch of staff. There was um, redundancies that happened. And we were about to launch a national product uh, for youth and I'd worked very hard on it. Um, and just in a short period of time, that all just obviously, that, that door shut for me. And so I actually found myself in 2011 having to finish up work and I, I sat down for in, in a cafe for about six weeks um, just asking God, God, what do you want me to do with my life? Like what is it that you want me to do? Because I don't think it's radio. I do believe that social justice is heart of, Helping the needy and the poor, that's your heart. Educating young people on the world that we live in is important. I love working with teenagers. And so over this period I sat down, it was it was just a combination of going, well, social justice is a passion of mine and motivating. So just motivation kind of came out of this, this is my heart. And uh, I started sort of writing program mainly just on those sort of topics and obviously that story was one of those things. Uh, and speaking schools, I started off with a program that was just like a 45-minute session just sharing that story and and giving some really practical outworkings of how we can actually change our world as young people. And then that sort of developed into full-day leadership and faith sessions. So this year is, is my ninth year. I, I spend my time working with teenagers, challenging their hearts towards the things that I believe God's heart is. And we have a lot of fun. I use a lot of humour and um, we do big group activities and on an average day, I work with anywhere between 100 and 200 students, and I just work with that group by myself running this program. Yeah, for me, I just want to challenge young people to use the giftings and the passions that they have in their life to impact others in a positive way. And uh, absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. So, yeah, obviously started a podcast as well, the As Speaks podcast for teenagers as well on a weekly basis. And yeah, absolutely love it. Do you ever cast your mind to where life would be if you hadn't had that trip to Haiti? Yeah, I look back at a lot of things in my life that I I just go, God's so kind to me. Uh, I feel like it's interesting. You know how some people, they just have a natural ability just to go on life's journey and they it, they don't need like shock moments. They don't need like really like a punch in the face to get your attention. <laughs> Unfortunately with me, I, I kind of find that God has to get my attention by doing the slap to the face, wake up, hey, this is where I need to take you. And I've just been really fortunate that there's been these core moments in my life that have led me to where I am. I, I think about moments like sponsoring my first child, like that was a definitive moment. I think about trips like that to Haiti. There's been so many of those sort of stories that have led me to where I am. And I do, I do sometimes think, if anything, with the Haiti trip, I, I do think this, and I don't know if you ever thought this, imagine if we went to Haiti and it was just a, a very stock standard uh, trip. You know, we got to see the good work that Compassion does, which is incredible. And if you don't sponsor a child with Compassion, 
go and do it today. If you're just listening to this for the first time, just go and sponsor a child. Like it's the greatest thing you can do. Um, if we'd just gone on a normal trip and we'd met some great kids and we'd met some great staff and we saw the great things that they were doing, helping those kids, and then we got on a plane and came home, I wonder if the gravity of what Compassion's doing would have really hit. Like, and I'm so thankful for the trip that we got. And it was a once in a lifetime trip. And even for those leading the trip, they they wouldn't have expected it. And I don't think a trip has happened like it since. Um, so I am thankful that I was on that trip. I get students ask me all the time, like, if you if you had your chance again to go on that trip again, would you do it? And obviously you go, well, it would be a bit crazy to put yourself in a dangerous position like that. But if I knew that the outcome was the same, absolutely. <laughs> like you, you would do it, absolutely, because these things change you for the better. I think I'm a much better person, nicer person, kinder person, more empathetic person because of it. And, um, yeah, I, I'm thankful for the experiences that I've had even in my younger, like young years the life stuff that's happened to me because it, it does, it develops you uh, and your character and the way you see the world. And um, I'm constantly, you know, growing in those areas. But, yeah, definitely do think back to those sort of things like a trip like that and go, yeah, I'm, I'm so fortunate that I was on that trip. As I do look forward to seeing what are some of the other defining moments that God uses in your life from this point on and where that leads you because it sounds like it's been an incredible journey so far. So I'm going to sort of keep that in mind as I continue to to watch your life and, and what happens in it. But I want to say a deep thank you for spending time with us today and sharing with us just a piece of your story. Thank you. Thanks, Rodney. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.